The Bioceuticals Clinical Range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more. and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. With us today is naturopath Sandra Bellella. Sandra has been in practice for almost three decades and runs a busy practice in Melbourne. Sandra has a particular interest in women's health and is also a consultant naturopath and clinical leader for Jean Hales, Australia's leading women's health organisation, a position she has held since 1999. Welcome to FX Medicine, Sandra. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Lisa. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk about something that I feel quite strongly about and I know you and I have spoken about there's a bit of misinformation around this topic so I'm really pleased to be sitting here and nutting it out with you. Oh me too and I've been counting down the days for us to have this chat (laughs) (laughs) and really bring awareness to what premenstrual dysphoric disorder is all about and I'm going to call it PMDD from now on because it is a bit of a mouthful. So Mm -hmm. if we look at the stats PMDD is incredibly prevalent. Three to eight percent of women worldwide have it including me so I'm very excited to chat about it. But it's also very underrecognised, and because it's underrecognised, I feel like a lot of women go undiagnosed, or they're misdiagnosed with bipolar or PMS. So maybe you could start by telling us what PMDD actually is, and differentiating between PMS and PMDD because they get lumped together a lot, even in the research. Yes. So. Tell us how they're different, I guess. I guess I have a bit of a biased approach because Mm. I actually see so many women with Mm. PMDD and I get lots of referrals, particularly from the GPs at my work at Jean House. And also the stats that you were talking about in terms of the percentage, if you look at what happens to women, Mm. you know, you think about that 3 to 8% of women, roughly what it works out to be is one week per cycle, would mm. they would experience about 8.6 years, cumulative years of symptoms. Oh, my gosh. And so that's really similar to what someone with recurrent major depressive disorder would experience across mm. their lifetime. Mm. So it really does have quite an impact. And I see a little bit of a merging distinction between PMS and PMDD. Mm. But as, you, as most people would know, the PMDD does have a DSM-5 criteria. So it's like it has a psychological criteria. Mm. And there's four categories. That's right. And particularly women need to have at least four 
four of the section of number A, which is kind of looking at a lot of the anxiety symptoms, you know, market depressed moods, marked anxiety, effective liability, persistent and marked anger. I'll just list these and you can Mm. decide to keep them in a decreased interest in usual activities. And I think that's a key one. Mm. So work, school, friends and hobbies. And a subjective sense of difficulty in concentrating. Mm. Lethargy, easy fatigability or marked lack of energy. Marked change in appetite, overeating or specific food cravings. Mm. Hypersomnia or insomnia. Mm. And a subjective sense of being overwhelmed or out of control. Other physical symptoms, you know, such as the breast tenderness, swelling, headaches, joints or muscle pain and the sensation of bloating or weight gain. So they need to have at least five of those 11 symptoms and then Mm. there's criterion B and C. Mm. But I think the distinction is if the person feels like it significantly interferes with their ability to be social um, in terms of occupational and their interactions, their sexual interactions, their scholastic functioning. I think that's the big distinction. Yeah. I've had a partner say to me previously, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde Mm. change. You're totally nice and normal and then you turn into this other person and I've never seen anyone kind of flip so quickly. I've had patients say to me, like I've had a patient that constantly lost her job because she just Mm. morphed into this other person after ovulation and was really difficult to deal with. So it's you're completely right. It's that really and marked I, yes. change. And I think the thing to acknowledge about that is these people feel out of control. Yes. It definitely. really is. They can't do anything about it. It is really like something kind of takes over. And when we'll talk about the understanding mm. of that won't we'll get an understanding of why. And so yes, it is disruptive. Yeah, a lot of people feel like it's very overwhelming. It's like there's yes. there's a flip that gets switched. Okay, so you mentioned that it fits into that DSM-5 criteria mm-hmm. and I know that in 2022 it was also classified as a gynecological disease. So mm-hmm. we're seeing this kind of marrying between female repro and depressive disorders. How do we view this naturopathically? Well, I don't think we've done this very well mm. in the past. And I think that's what I'd really like to highlight in this mm. discussion yeah. is that previously we, I think traditionally and like for 30 years, we've kind of looked at this PMS as being an estrogen dominance condition. Yes. And that is my real bugbear. I absolutely <laughs> hate it. And I've done talks on trying to debunk mm. the myths. Yeah. But it, it, is, it is this marrying. And what we know about the etiology of PMDD, it's an interaction between the steroidal, you know, these gonadal hormones and our our neurotransmitters. Yeah. So it fits in both. And look, in Melbourne, we have a whole unit at the Alfred where it's dedicated to mood and hormones. Mm. And it's it's um, so while it is a gynecological, it really is a mental health disorder as well. Yeah. I, I guess that's the real beauty, right? And of what naturopathy does, I think sometimes we like to compartmentalise conditions into systems, but it's a really beautiful depiction of the synergy between systems Mm. and how one system always affects another. Mm. The beauty of as naturopaths, we have fantastic tools to be able to deal with this. But one of the things that I'm really keen to do, and like my understanding changed after the new guidelines came out in 2017. And these 2017, there was these guidelines that came out from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's a great big fat paper, but it talks about the new theories. And so I presented at the NHAA 
International Conference, I think in 2019 or 20. And this has opened up a really good discussion. A lot of my colleagues who I really respected to do a lot of work with reproductive health and mm. with women's health, we had great conversations about this. You know, I know that I was hoping to change the way we think about this. I'm not saying I'm the fall, I'm the one who did it, but it's certainly I know my colleagues in Melbourne kind of thought, okay, we need to look at this differently. And we do have these great tools, but it's now, it's how we look at it. Mm. So I think rather than looking at the hormones, because all the research is showing Mm. there are normal levels of hormones, all of the hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, the metabolite of progesterone, which is really interesting, Mm. allopregnanolone, which Mm. I'm sure we'll talk about. Definitely. All normal levels, whether you've got PMS, PMDD, or you're asymptomatic, it's the altered response and the suboptimal response at the level of the neurotransmitters, mm. particularly GABA mm. with the allopregnetolone and progesterone and the relationship between estrogen and serotonin. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the key thing. And so what we want to do is we target those. We can do stuff mm. with with all of those. We can modulate these neurotransmitters. And one of the things I'd love to I don't know whether anyone's looked at this, but I wonder whether some of the ways our beautiful medicines work is it's working on the plasticity of Mm. those receptors to respond better. Because when research has been done to look at altering the metabolism of these hormones, it doesn't make a difference. So it's really looking at the level of the, you know, we've got great medicines to work at the level of these neurotransmitters. Mm, Definitely. So let's chat more about what you've said, because from what I've understood is that it's not an excess of estrogen. We don't need to clear excess of estrogen. Our estrogen isn't the bad guy. Progesterone isn't necessarily the good guy that we want to increase because that can cause problems too. It's more that these women have a sensitivity to normal fluctuations that are occurring between the hormones and there's a flow on action to the neurotransmitters in the brain particularly. I actually find that's really difficult. Sometimes it's with my students, Mm. it's a really difficult concept to understand. And I think the whole idea about oestrogen excess, as you know, I hate, Mm. I use different terminology like (laughs) oestrogen dependent. This is not an oestrogen dependent or excessive condition. Absolutely. And so there are times when oestrogen clearance is Mm. highly appropriate if Mm. you're dealing with an oestrogen dependent condition like endometriosis or gynecological cancers. Mm. But here, particularly... If we do that, it can worsen symptoms. And if I give an example, particularly of a perimenopausal woman who already has a bit more sensitivity to the decline in the estrogen. Now, I am talking about a decline in estrogen, that normal endogenous decline in that premenstrual phase, Mm. where some of these women in their 40s will get PMS, if we can just deter from PMS, classic PMD, because I really wanted to introduce this perimenopausal PMS. Mm. They get these night sweats, low mood, hot flushes, Mm. headaches in that phase, you go in and do oestrogen clearance, you're worsening their clinical outcome. Exactly. Yeah. Pet peeve of mine too. (laughs) (laughs) So these hormones, in terms of how they work in the brain, they're actually called neuroactive steroids, right? I think a lot of the time when we're at uni and a lot of the general public just think that the hormones are there to kind of give us a period and that's all they do. But they're actually made in the brain from cholesterol, right? And that's in part how they work in terms of their behaviour and mood effects and and what we see in PMDD, there's receptors, right, for yes, hormones. Yes, I love that you brought that up. There's mm. these neuroactive steroids or NAS, we can call mm. them. 
And they are, you know, they're produced in endocrine tissue or brain and they interact with these neuron receptors like GABA. And look, I don't claim to know the specifics of the different receptors, but it goes Mm. into the specifics of which GABA receptors. Mm. And then these neuroactive steroids are like pregnenolone, progesterone, estradiol, and also corticosterone. Mm. And the interesting thing is progesterone and allopregnenolone, which is a metabolite, normally they actually work to make you relax. They, They modulate GABA. But somehow they have this paradoxical effect in women with PMDD or sometimes they talk about whether it's the drop Mm. that might be triggering. So the problem is, is we don't know. So if you come in and try and increase the progesterone metabolism or increase progesterone levels generally Mm. and this woman is sensitive, then again, we could get the wrong outcome. Yeah, that's actually happened to me. I was actually prescribed pregnenolone and I literally cannot describe how bad it was. It was yes. like a manic psychotic yes. episode. Absolutely. So I think it's really important to bring that up. Yeah, and there's two points that I'd like to make about that, like in terms of how we treat allopathically, but also mm. if we look at the current theories of what this is, it still says, you know, if you look at PMS and PMDD, there is uncertainty mm. around the etiology, but it revolves around the ovarian hormone cycle. Mm. And the two theories are that some women are sensitive mm. to progesterone and the progestins. Now, again, if you're sensitive to these progestins and in endogenous progesterone, you get put on the pill You're going to be sensitive to those progestins. The newer generation progestins in the pill you might be better at and possibly progesterone, like in terms of the progesterone now that's prescribed as a body identical, not bioidentical, Mm. but body identical, you may get response. But it will often worsen them. If you're already sensitive, you can be sensitive to these exogenous as well. And then the other one we talked about where there's this interaction or responsiveness of the neurotransmitters, serotonin and GABA, they're responsive to estrogen mm. or the progesterone or the allopregnenolone respectively. So mm. these neuroactive steroid hormones are really working and, and changing the metabolism of those hormones isn't the way to go, but maybe working at how we can target the neurotransmitters particularly and the receptors. Yeah. So you've mentioned allopregnenolone and I think, mm. again, we hear a lot about progesterone, we hear a lot about estrogen, but we never hear about allopregnenolone, and, and I I came across it a couple, oh maybe maybe four or five years ago, not a couple, and it was reading an Instagram post on allopregnenolone mm. that actually alerted to me to the fact that okay, I think this is actually what's going on with me, and this is why the yeah. standard B six and magnesium just is doing nothing. So can you tell us? Mm about allopregnenolone? Yeah, look, the more I read about it, the more I find it intriguing. Mm. So it's synthesised from progesterone. There's a couple of steps that do it. And there's some theory about women might be having a a higher expression of one of the enzymes, but there's no direct evidence to Mm. date that women with PMD have any alteration in that enzymatic pathway from progesterone to allopregnenolone. So, so, you know, traditionally we might have wanted to improve progesterone and certainly you want to think, oh, should we improve that pathway? Mm. But there's no evidence that it does. And so what the research looks at, it's not likely the absolute level of this Mm. allopregnenolone But certainly it's very important, but changes in its levels across the luteal phase that trigger PMDD. Yeah, that's right. 
And so when the woman is sensitive, as you said, she's getting those symptoms of aggression and anxiety or depression. Mm. But I think something important to note is this is only happening in the luteal phase, right? Yes, if it's, yes. and I think that's the distinction. I mean, when mm. we talk about premenstrual syndrome mm. and PMDD, it can be a lot of symptoms, but it's the when it occurs. It's yeah. not how much or the level of it or the degree of it. It's the fact that it has to be in that luteal phase and should resolve within the first few days of the cycle. Yeah. If, if you've got, and that we need to make that distinction because sometimes women are getting an exacerbation of an underlying condition. Yes. So if you've got anxiety all the time, you might get an exacerbation of this. Mm. But it's interesting, one of the things that I'm really interested in, I don't think we have the answer to, it seems to be this plasticity of these GABA receptors or their subunits in response to these neuroactive uh, steroids, mm. a fluctuation, that may be the key aspect of PMD pathophysiology. Mm. And I don't think at this time, at this time we've got limited animal research. And I wonder, and there will be people out there smarter than me that might say that actually some of the nutrients we're using are actually working on that plasticity yeah. of the receptors. Yeah. And I think Amazing. that's still to come. Oh, I'm dying to talk more about that, but I'm just going to store that away yeah, for yeah, one yeah. sec and then come back to I, it. I can't, I can't expand on that anymore. It's a theory. <laughs> and I think there might be, you know, in 10 years' time we might know more about it. Mm. So... We've talked about allopregnant alone and, and mm. really it is the main kind of metabolite that is involved with PMDD, but so is serotonin, right? Yes. We know that women are often prescribed SSRIs for management mm. of PMDD and they're one of the first line treatments. But what's going on with serotonin in PMDD? Well, that's interesting. So the serotonin-estrogen relationship mm. is more distinct. Yeah. And I was just reading before trying to get my understanding around how the SSRIs work mm. and some work better than others and yes. certainly in the guidelines they give specifics in terms of and when we talk about the allopathic interventions. I think then they talk about how maybe they then have an impact on GABA mm. because the serotonin we always think about as the happy hormone and I kind of focus on that one a lot more and target that serotonin sparing particularly with the low mood yeah. that, that will occur. And you, you do get a normal endogenous drop of estrogen just beforehand. And that's often the low mood is just just prior yeah. often to that period. Do you, do you notice that? Like, you know, you get all yes, that agitation I, I and irritability and then that low mood. <laughs> but I see and, it like a lot of my patients say to me, it's like literally they feel amazing at ovulation and it's literally yeah. straight after that drop in estrogen yeah. that they notice, yeah. uh-oh, now it started, yeah. then it kind of levels yes. out, and then again at that second drop in that yes. mid-luteal, things really kind yes. of, they run into problems, yeah. Mm. And again, we don't want our practitioners to work on the estrogen levels there, no. although, you know, but again, it's that how it then has this conversation with mm. serotonin. Mm. Professor Jai Shurakulkani, who heads up MAPS at, at the Alfred, she's got great stuff about how estrogen works on serotonin. Mm. And, and, you know, I think also we as naturopaths, traditionally we demonise estrogen. Mm. Estrogen rocks, you know. Oh, it's, it. So it does have an impact on on our brain. Mm. I, I'm really interested in some of the serotonin sparing herbs mm. for PMS and my key one, and I know you like this one too, mm. is if we can bring it in is saffron. <laughs> I love it. And, and I do tend to use that 
more than I do with St John's Ward and because mm. often a lot of the w- people I'm seeing are already on an SSRI mm. and so saffron you can use but you can't use St John's Ward. And mm. so the SSRI gives them some relief but not complete relief. Yeah, I think it's something like 40% of women don't respond to SSRIs. Mm. I mean, and that's a huge percentage that do obviously but sometimes there's a whole lot mm. more we can do. Yeah, I love saffron. So yes. it sounds like you do that throughout the cycle. Yeah, I do. Look, it's interesting. Thing. When you look at the allopathic treatment, they sometimes just use cyclical mm. SSRIs mm. and then if that doesn't improve, then they'll increase the dose or they'll use it throughout the whole cycle. Yeah. But I tend to use saffron throughout the cycle, but mm. given that the SSRIs might work, mm. that they just work in that luteal phase, and I don't know the pharmacokinetics of how quickly the um, saffron works. I found that literally I could just do it in one shot and Mm. I will notice a difference straight away. Yeah, so I I think it's working pretty quickly. Yes. But, I mean, I'm like you. When I'm doing the liquids, my patients get it throughout the month. Yes. Sometimes I will alter the dose. Like if we look at the guidelines, it's one of the things about the guidelines that I talk about and I'll I'll put a reference in, is they had about two or three pages, now this is Mm. back 2017, of the research of complementary medicines and therapies. So it actually gave a literature review and some of them were kind of a bit novel. But in the guidelines, in that first line of intervention, B6, is talked about as first line. So it says exercise, cognitive behavioural therapy, B6. Mm. And Mm. then interestingly, arguably there's insufficient evidence about what B6 does, but Mm. we know as practitioners how might it work. You know, it has a role to play in the synthesis of GABA and Mm. serotonin. It tends to be a precursor for those. And we have to be careful with the doses. Mm. What sort of dose do you tend to do? Yeah, really Mm. interesting. (laughs) So I look at levels between a baseline 50 to 100 Mm. and never any more than 200 because there are cases of, Mm. of peripheral neuropathy and I might increase it in that luteal phase but no more than 200. Um, what sort of doses are you using with the B6? Well, I don't use <laughs> I don't use oh. B, B6. I've got At all. I feel no, I feel like I only use calcium is my mm-hmm. number number 1 and I love to talk about that, yeah, yeah, I feel like my patients have already tried magnesium and it's not to mm. say it hasn't helped but it just hasn't mm. been enough. So I use yeah. calcium magnesium D and mm. I feel like calcium is the VIP when it comes to PMDD. Like it yes. just works look, so yes. well. And interestingly, mag- naturopaths love magnesium. There's limited scientific evidence of magnesium working. Mm. Clinically, I feel mm. like it works. But in fact, arguably one of the best levels of evidence we have for the management of PMS and PMD is calcium. Yeah. So originally in 2009 when they came out, it was really high doses, 500 mm. milligrams BD of calcium carbonate, so Mm. we're not going to use calcium carbonate. Mm. We'll use better forms. And then later on there was a a study looking at 500 milligrams daily reduced PMS. And one of the things particularly, it was the depression that was useful. And so I think a lot of naturopaths forget about calcium. And so I I do use the both together. Mm. Yeah, I found some really interesting research with calcium and you might already Mm. know this, but I I was shocked. Calcium follows a similar pattern to estrogen in the body. 
So oh. when, yeah, so women with PMDD show these alterations in cyclical calcium homeostasis and it's because mm-hmm. they, they're so sensitive. Well, we know oestrogen kind of modulates calcium anyway in the body and mm-hmm. so when oestrogen withdraws, we see a drop in calcium as well. So calcium is responsible for essentially neurotransmission and, and release of monoamines like serotonin yes. and dopamine. So when oh, we have right. this dysregulation of calcium in the luteal phase, basically those calcium channel gates don't open properly and we see this neuronal dysfunction and this probably, I don't know if it's no release, but impaired release of serotonin and dopamine. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, which drives see, a lot of this mood stuff. Really hard to find evidence, obviously you have, on the calcium. And I think I searched and searched and Mm. I will often say, look, I don't know why it works. And I think Mm. I found something, some reference to how it might have been working with schizophrenia, like this this one line. But, yes, I think it's underutilised in this area. And probably has yet one of the best levels of evidence. Yeah. And then if you look at the signs of low calcium, the mood Mm. deficiency symptoms, it's actually mania, irritability, hostility, aggression, which is very similar to the PMDD. So I think probably like a lot of women in their menstrual cycle, I feel really good in that follicular phase and I don't take any of my supplements. And then I go, "Uh oh, I'm starting to, that person chewing next to me is really irritating me. I can hear that person breathing and I'm filled Mm. with rage. Um, And as soon as I take the calcium, everything feels calmer. Those feelings are still there, but instead of them being an 11 out of 10, they might be like a three or four out of 10. They're they're not as overwhelming and unmanageable. I really appreciate you sharing your experience too. And I think the listeners will benefit from it, having Mm. as from a practitioner point of view and from a a patient point of view. Mm. But look, and also how many of your patients do you feel like are getting adequate calcium in their diet? Oh, hardly any. Yeah, that, this is the thing. Yeah, particularly with you know sort of any dairy exclusion. I know mm. dairy is not the only answer, or certainly with diets that have mm. got exclusions, it's quite difficult to yeah. achieve. So, do you have mm. any other favourite supplements? Yeah, so I'd love to talk about Phytex. Mm. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I actually said to you, would you like to talk about Phytex? I know. Do you know. I, I, I'm one of these practitioners. So many students and practitioners are scared of Vitex. Yes. I'm not. Oh. And <laughs> I, first of all, I really don't think we know how it works. Yeah, but I was going to say how the it does work. That it works. Okay. Standardized extracts of Vitex agnus castus mm. do work. Mm. And I think as naturopaths, we think that has something to do with the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, but mm. it is also working on estrogen receptors. Mm. It probably has a direct action on estrogen. I think the thing that I'd like to tap into a bit mm. more and I don't claim to understand is because it works on dopamine, yeah. somehow that may be how it's working for the mood aspects. Interesting. Because mm. so I, I feel like I'm there's a real art to prescribing Vitex and Tell us, tell well, us you more. Well, you know, I, I think I'm just gung-ho with it. Like I just think <laughs> sometimes, you know what happens is sometimes I'm not using it and do all the neurotransmitter stuff and use the nervines and the B6 and magnesium calcium and I think, do you know what? I really need to use some Vitex with mm. this patient mm. and it works. Have you and ever so, had a patient where it makes, I guess where I'm worried is I've taken it and I just felt terrible, worse mood. So now I'm always cautious, I'm scared but have you yeah. ever have you ever had a patient where you've given it and you've gone, uh oh, 
or they've come back and said, I felt terrible? Usually no. And, like, I've got really trusted colleagues who've got all these rules about using it and don't use it without testing. I'm not a big tester. I don't do lots of testing. Yeah. I don't feel like you need to have any. And certainly because we know that the hormone levels aren't relevant with this anyway. Mm. I usually warn people, uh, I'll say to patients, we need to do this for three months. Yeah. And I say, I always say, for some reason, the first period is often more painful if they do have dysmenorrhea. don't know mm. why. And sometimes in that first month, there's a worsening of cyclical nostalgia Mm. and I just say hang in there and there's a small handful of people who will get headaches and I usually ask them to persist because it usually goes away Mm. and there's probably a minority of people that I won't continue Vitex with. Mm. So it's funny, I've got this thing, you know, to Vitex or not to Vitex and I reckon, (laughs) you know, and there's very few times that I wouldn't use Vitex but it's not always my go-to but Mm. I've used it for years you know, 30 years, and I still don't think we know how we, it, it works. Yeah, that's right. I love that you were talking about that it w- may work on estrogen receptors because yeah. I've never heard that and we always just yeah. hear that it's, well, we know that it helps to decrease prolactin. Mm-hmm. We know yes. that it can increase LH, but a lot of people kind of say it's progesterogenic and I think that's yes. because of it, what it does with prolactin, but I've never heard about that estrogen aspect no. before. And, like, I kind of ignore that a little bit because mm. we always think that what how does it do is I think what it will do is it will facilitate or help with ovulation and we know mm. that with our fertility patients it has yeah. an impact on doing that. And so it's also good for the perimenopause or premenstrual woman who might have irregular cycles. But I think the other thing is there's some really dumb things out there about how people use it only in the, mm. you know, only in the cyclical phase. Mm. It, traditionally, every day, you yeah. know, if you're starting it in the luteal phase, you've missed it because it's got to work on that ovarian follicle development if it's called yeah. that follicular phase. But I think it has a use. It's not always the way to go. Mm. And, of course, you can't use it if someone's already on the oral contraceptive pill. Mm. Okay, so if you were going to give Vitex, you would give it all month. And do you suggest starting it on day one of the cycle? Yeah, Yeah, as close to day one. If you've got someone who's a bit oligomenorrheic, you know, just kind of risk it. So, look, Mm. it might mean that your period comes earlier or later. But yes, I do, day one. And the other thing is, is I think particularly young practitioners or, you know, early out, they'll think that they only need to take it for three to six months and that's Mm, it. mm. A lot of people just need to be on it for a long time, Mm. years. Wow, okay. So I'm not scared of doing that. Usually the first 17 years of my practice I worked with Ruth Tricky and Mm. she used to say generally there's a little sign if you've been on it for too long the cycle starts to get longer. It stretches out and then Mm. you can have a little break. I've got another colleague who stops it for a few months and then starts back on. I just, unless there's a reason to stop it, I just keep keep going. Yeah, and to be honest, I think with conditions like this, I don't know Mm. if PMDD ever completely goes away. Do you know what I mean? Until you're maybe like menopausal. So it's more about just continuous use to really minimise symptoms and make everything more bearable. But It's very unusual for me in my experience for it to completely go away. It's a management strategy, an ongoing management strategy. And really, unless you have an an oophorectomy or or until menopause, and then, of course, you might, women with PMDD are more likely, unfortunately, to have low mood at at menopause. (laughs) Yes. 
but uh, we don't know. Mm. There's no way of predicting. Mm. Can we go to what you were just talking about before about the partial mm. hysterectomy? Because I'm on a Facebook group mm. for women yes. with PMDD and because I feel like generally my symptoms are quite well managed like now definitely with what mm. we do naturopathically, I am always very shocked to see some of the posts that are being written and you've got young women that are really struggling, and I'll talk about that in a sec, mm. but there are some women that are opting to have a partial hysterectomy because mm. their mood symptoms are so bad. Yeah. So can you run us through some of the yes, allopathic? I can. Yeah. Look, it's in the guidelines, it's the fourth line of intervention where you've got this surgical treatment, so it's mm. an oophorectomy, a bilateral oophorectomy. I think a uterus is usually left because that's where it's coming from, the ovaries. Mm. It's not the uterus. And I've had one patient mm. who had that done last year and I'm on medication and, you know, she was knocking at the door of menopause and was yeah. kind of like, you know, can you hang in there? And it was mm. she opted for that and it has made a difference. But, of course, now she's got menopausal symptoms, but they are far more manageable. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it does. It's concerning that on that Facebook page there are young sufferers of PMD opting mm. for that because there is so many things that can be done before that. Yeah. I find all the things naturopaths and holistic nutritionists recommend extremely helpful. But I do know in some other countries they do offer allopregnanolone blockers, which yep. I find really interesting because the research suggests that reduces mood symptoms by sometimes up to 75%. Oh, so they're, so usually, oh, they're blocking the yellow pregnenolone directly. Yeah, yeah they, okay. don't, they don't offer that here, but any no. of those meds here, but I kind of thought that was really interesting, yeah. Look, the third line of treatment, they use that, the GNRH analogue, so they basically put you into a, a biochemical mm. menopause and then they do a bit of add-back hormone therapy, so mm. they'll use like estradiol and progesterone. Mm. So they'll use like a, an estradiol patch, so body identical estradiol and then they'll use or gel and then they'll use the micronized progesterone. Mm. But again, look, if you're sensitive to these, That's these what hormonal I was thinking. changes, you're going to be sensitive yeah. to the exogenous as well. Yeah. But, you know, to those people, I would say at least before you have a surgery, try what it's like mm. at a biochemical level, like at mm. least go on the Zolodex or whatever it is to mm. see. Yeah. If you're starved of those hormones, yeah. it's pretty extreme. Yeah, it is. I want to just run back on something you were talking about before, mm. and that is your patient that had had, you know, some pretty severe depression, it would seem. And definitely when a lot of my clients come to see me, the main kind of driver for them coming is that they're experiencing these extremes in mood and mm. they've sometimes got small children and, and mm. partners and there's this real shame and self-loathing that comes with their behaviour and the way that they behave towards their loved ones but also just this this very strong depression. And, and we know from the research the menstrual cycle has been found to be a trigger, increasing yes. risk of suicide in, in women who are more hormone-sensitive. Meta-analysis shows this. And mm -hmm. uh, in the last, I think, couple of years, there's been at least three meta-analysis that show that women with PMDD should be considered a high-risk group for suicidality. Mm. In fact, I think in one survey, it was like 30% of women had reported attempts to end their own life. So do you think then as practitioners, we should be doing our DAS and working in line with a psychologist or is that something you, you mm, I mean, really I know you, you do. But so Look, I'm quite privileged. Most of the 
patients I'm seeing mm. are co-managed by a GP. Usually mm. at Gene House, we, we share patients, so we can actually share the files. Certainly, most people will definitely be encouraging to see a psychologist, the mm. cognitive behavioural therapy. And I know you want to talk a bit about trauma or whether it's trauma-based therapy. Yeah. And I think the idea of some sort of prom, so we can look at what's happening, even when, you know the old menstrual cycle, mm. using an app that looks at what's happening, and the idea of the DAS, yes, I guess to differentiate between if it is this cyclical or is mm. it is it generalised anxiety disorder? Is this person a depression risk? Yeah. Um, I often find the patient's been seeing a psychologist and it's the psychologist that's actually yes, picked up, yes, hey, absolutely. this is a cyclical thing, let's see, mm. you know, referral to the naturopath for some assistance there. But some patients, they've heard a podcast or something like that and they're not under the care of a psychologist. And I just find that working together with one, we just mm. get so much better yes. results, you know. Look, you raise a point about, you know, listening to a podcast. And mm. unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation and nothing. Mm. I have a real bugbear with when patients come in and they're taking hormone balancing formulations that mm. they've got from the internet. Mm. And it's kind of a one size fits all, put everything all in together and some things might be okay, but you can't hormone balance. It's not about that. Mm. And so I had a patient who had gone on because I think it's an estrogen excess mm. and gone on those formulas that really deplete estrogen like mm. the and just had really bad symptoms. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're privileged to work with these patients yeah. and you've really, again, like we were naturopaths, it's individualised care. Yes. And I think it also brings in the other thing that we think about naturopathically. We've talked a lot about this hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access, but the HPA access, mm. we do know that certainly if these GABA receptors fail to respond appropriately to yeah. these fluctuating allopregnolone, You've got over the crossing menstrual cycle, it follows that these GABA receptors exert poor control over the HPA access in PMDD as well. That's right. So there's this overlap. Mm. So it might be that the poor GABA regulation of the HPA access may be reflected in this increased stress sensitivity mm. of women with PMDD. So mm. in that luteal phase, so of course, we've got to look at everything else. What's yeah. happening in their life? Are they yeah. having a poor diet? Are they really stressed? Yeah. So it's not just working on those. Of course, we're going to be using our adaptogens. And My favourite. Yeah. yeah. So going back to, I mean, I feel like the adaptogens are really king here and they yes. really make a difference. And as you've said, women with PMDD experience this heightened stress reactivity in the yes. week or two before their period, things that wouldn't normally stress them out. They have this amplified reaction to it. And yeah. I think that's to do with the allopregnanolone because normally yeah. apparently it helps with stress yeah. <laughs> modulation, but it's it's not doing what it's supposed to. So no. it's not making us feel sedate and, and relaxed. It's doing the opposite. So coming back to that trauma, I mm. find really, really interesting with a lot of my patients is that there is mm. a trauma history. And I know trauma is kind of a buzzword at the moment and it's, mm. it's overused and misused a lot, but the research does show that women with PMDD often, yes. not always, but there is often a history of trauma and mm. more so than women without. And I think that's an important consideration for practitioners to remember to be asking, you know, have you experienced any big stresses in life? And mm. again, it's coming back to that HP, T, mm. HPO, HPA mm. axis. Yeah. And Lisa, I love that you used the word, have you experienced any big stresses? Because mm. even talking about trauma, you know, we have to have that trauma-informed mm. way of, mm. of speaking. And I think the other thing is that we need to be respectful of 
is not necessarily asking the patient to recount the trauma. Mm. You know, I have long-standing patients who might have had post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. way back before it was more common. Mm. And to this day, I don't know what the cause of that was because I don't need to know. Mm. I just need to know how it impacts the patient and then I can do something about it. Exactly. You know, she doesn't have to rehash that trauma she can do that in a safe place and that that might be with you or it might be with another practitioner or it might be with her psychologist but it's really important that yes we ask if there's been big stresses and how it impacts them and that will help the way I think we shape our treatment absolutely because I think sometimes practitioners feel like oh I don't know how to deal with that if they do say something and it is about staying within our scope but also mm-hmm. completely being aware that these things do impact the client's presenting complaint. Okay, mm-hmm. so what about diet? Do you do yes. anything special there? Yeah, look, first line is well, naturopathic therapeutic order, institute a more healthful regime, mm-hmm. and like you know, remove the obstacles to cure. There's a lot of people not eating well. Mm. Look, in terms of research, one of the things that's clear is alcohol. Any more than one standard drink a day is considered Mm. an increased risk. Interestingly, coffee, even up to, I think, three or four cups of coffee a day has not been shown to have any impact, but I don't throw out. I love it. I know, I know, I know, (laughs) but I sort of still think, you know, from a naturopathic point of view, what's it doing to the nervous system? Mm. Look, I I think in moderation, I do like coffee. And I'm not an anti-coffee, but I think we if they're having three coffees, four coffees a day and not eating well. But Definitely. Look, in terms of diet, you know, I kind of look at it and I'd be interested in your comments about mm. making sure they've got the right macronutrients, mm. particularly protein and adequate amounts of carbohydrate, you know, good mm. carbohydrates. And the carbohydrate picture is... Interestingly, there seems to be, there was a big nurses study done on quite a lot of um, women that didn't seem to have any impact on carbohydrates, but, you know, low carbs, high carbs, I think mm. you certainly want to be getting rid of the refined carbohydrates. Mm. But yeah. yes, often there's room for, for movement with diet, absolutely. Mm. I often find women are skimping a little bit on the carbohydrates and whole mm. food carbohydrates are something I really recommend to my patients in the luteal mm. phase because I find that often because they're getting these wild cravings and I think that's in part due to that withdrawal of serotonin which can help to yes. kind of govern satiety. When they feel like they're getting the cravings, like I can't eat and so they deprive and then, then they binge, mm. I think yes. if you know, they just focus on just eating normally, which I know is hard sometimes, then everything's going to be a lot better. I also Mm. feel like something I recommend a lot is just prepping a lot more in the follicular phase so that you have Mm. food ready for that luteal phase when you know you're just not going to be motivated, the energy's going to be lower. So then if you've got the food in the freezer or the fridge, you're less likely to be calling for the Uber Eats Mm. and the the door dash. And, and and that's in line with, you know, first line of intervention should be planning. Mm. So, you know, planning that sort of thing and also planning like, you know, you're not going to host family Christmas mm. for 50 <laughs> people if it happens to be in your premenstrual phase. No, yes. give it to the sister-in-law this year. You know, yeah. it's kind of like planning is really important. And I think some people are in really high-powered jobs. And I always say, you know, if you're the CEO of this company, mm. don't have your board meetings scheduled mm. at that time. The planning is really important. Yeah, but It's interesting about the carbohydrates premenstrually that you said, you know, like if you usually have a canned fish and salad at lunchtime, throw in some brown red rice or red rice or, or some sweet potato Potatoes, or some good yeah. healthy carbohydrates so then you're not 
raiding the biscuit barrel two hours later. Mm. Okay, last question for you. Mm. What about light therapy? Yes, I haven't heard about that Ah. one, Lisa. Okay, I'm really big on, is one of my favourite recommendations for everyone, but especially for women with PMDD. So there's been a couple of very small studies where they expose women to light and essentially this could be natural light. There would be nothing wrong with, I usually say, go to the beach and or just go outside on your veranda and get some natural light. It's better early in the morning. But when light hits our eye, it actually transmits Mm. to the brain and we get a release of serotonin. So Mm. what they've done in these clinical trials is they've given women a light, a light that emits a specific frequency of the light. And so they're exposed to the bright light and this actually increases their serotonin. And they've only done this in the luteal phase in women Mm. with PMDD, but they experienced an improvement in their mood. So we know generally light therapy helps with just regular old depression and seasonal depression. So they found that the same thing is great for women with PMDD. So natural light therapy is something I recommend to all my patients Mm. because, I mean, it's good for everyone, but especially good for anyone with a mood disorder. Mm, Absolutely. And I like that. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm quite, you know, when we talk so technically and and whatnot about all of these, it's really important to think about naturopathic principles where, Mm. you know, basically get into nature, Mm. you know, level two. And in terms of stimulating that healing process and how do we do that, get into nature. And I love that there's more of this awareness of this kind of green psychology. And so... That's an interesting point. I wonder then, Lisa, if it seems to be a worsening of the PMDD winter. Yeah, I think so. I do know that plasma melatonin has been shown to be delayed in the luteal phase of women with PMDD. So if we think Mm. about that serotonin, melatonin kind of relationship and it's probably something to do with that too. But I definitely find, I can speak for myself here, definitely worse mood and motivation in winter than in summer. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good one. Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much and I'm sure our listeners have just gotten so many gems from you. Key points today that I've taken away are probably the big one is good old Vitex. I'm going to give it <laughs> give it a second chance. <laughs> um, scared, yeah. I'm going to see how I go and report back to you. Vitex mm. for management of PMDD symptoms, giving it first thing in the morning and all through the cycle. Second one I really have to highlight is both our favourites is the calcium and dosage between 500 to 1,000 or so. Do you do that throughout the cycle or just luteal phase? I do it throughout the cycle okay. and I keep it more to the 500, especially mm. as they get older because unfortunately you know, they talk about higher doses in mm. in insusceptible women mm. might be increasing the risk of, of cardiovascular disease. But I think in our 20s and 30s, we're okay with those higher doses. Yeah, fantastic. So calcium game changer, I think, for a lot of women with PMDD. And then I think the big thing is just re-emphasising that oestrogen is not the bad guy um, mm. and not, not at all. And it's very, very important for everyone, but especially yes. with PMDD and it, we don't want to clear it out. It's more that PMDD is to do with that yes. um, abnormal yeah, abnormal reaction to the fluctuations in hormones and that flow on yes. action to the neurotransmitters. 
And I know you've just done a summary, but we really also need to say that because we're working at GABA, how many beautiful herbs yes. have we got that modulate yes. GABA yes. that are going to be really important for that agitation and irritation? Yeah. You know, Chamomile. we've got good documentation that, you know, Melissa, Wythania, mm. like a whole, you know, Melissa has had some trialing done on it, but your favourite GABA modulating herbs for that agitation, irritation. Uh, and you know anger kind of symptoms are really important too oh so many gems thank you so many gems. oh it's been lovely <laughs> i look forward to part two of this yes uh, definitely <laughs> definitely sandra thank you all right my pleasure thank you very much for for sharing your knowledge too it's been great oh, thanks thank you everyone for listening today Don't forget, you can find all our show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Lisa Costavere and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to FX Medicine and share us with your family, friends and colleagues.